Welcome to another episode of Politics in the Time of Corona. This is I'm a coup. Nura Just so people know, Erica. this is a coup. Go ahead. This, these are revolutionary times. I'm Nura Erekat with your favorite host, Bassam Haddad. We have a very special guest with us today who will be discussing the rise of anti-Asian racism in this particular moment. And we are joined today by a wonderful guest who uh, will... Uh, be addressing a number of issues related to the pandemic. And uh, before I uh, start, or before Nora starts with the questions, I'm going to share with you who this awesome person is. We are joined by Connie Wan, uh, she, Dr. Connie Wan. Uh, she is a co-founder and executive director of, of AAPI Women Lead. She is also the founder of Transformative Research, a community-driven research consultancy. Her work on ending racial and gender-based violence is rooted in her personal experiences and political commitments. She's been practicing yoga for 20 years and is a, uh, I have no idea how to say this properly, Muay Thai. Is that correct? Uh, enthusiast. The last word is enthusiast. So she's a Muay Thai enthusiast. I am very excited to be with you and hopefully um, we will speak with you again, but for now, I'll uh, give the stage over to my co-host, Noura Aliqat. Hi, Connie. Thank you for being with us. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. So we, we're, we're good. Um, <laughs> obviously, we can't figure out how, we should have rehearsed how to say Mai Tai, right? Mai Tai? Mai Tai? Muay Thai. Muay Thai. Muay Thai. I, I said it closer than you. Well, I know you're good at it. Um, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. Yeah. Um, lots of things happening uh, at home, in the world, you know, and in our organization. But otherwise, I think we're okay. I'm okay. Thanks for asking. Um, we're, we're glad to hear that, and we know that, that that's actually a big deal right now, especially as you've been on the front lines fighting against what has been a rise in anti-Asian racism in the course of the pandemic, uh, which has, in many ways, not just by um, you know President Trump, but by many people, has been described as a China virus or as somehow emerge, or somehow has to do uh, with a particular geographic location. Can you tell us, give us a little bit more context for those who haven't been following it? Sure. So there's been a couple of uh, ways that the anti-Asian climate has um, kind of risen in our current period. We have um, tr the Trump administration and Fox News and a couple of other um, more, I wouldn't say more reactionary uh, communities who have called this the Chinese virus and or the Chinese coronavirus, right? When the um, right wing was called out on calling it the Chinese virus, they changed it and they decided to concede with Chinese coronavirus. Uh, thank you so much. However, right. So we right. have that. And then we also have folks who um, are kind of in the community trying, I think out in the world, trying to figure, not maybe not trying to figure out, they've been really reactionary and blaming um, Asian communities, Asian people for the virus. Some have said it's because uh, this is where it started. Um, and I think the reason why 
you know, people in the community are, are blaming Asians is because they literally, one, are racist, or two, just really need an outlet for all of their rage. And then it's being fueled by uh, the U.S. administration, um, which I think in part, you know, is to uh, clamp down, or not clamp down, but to build upon their white nationalism. So I'll, I'll leave that there in case you want to follow up with questions about well, what I, think, I mean. Well, I would love to hear more, but I mean, I, I think that, that it's, it's to clamp down on the white nationalism, but also to divert responsibility for this. I mean, the way that the administration has handled this has been such a blunder. So what an easy deflection, which is to fuel and foment white supremacy, which is to say this isn't our fault anyway. And it came from outside and we should have sealed our borders and especially to Asians, right? Right. So I love that you said that. I think it, that's, that's been kind of their history, right? Which is to clamp down on white nationalism. I mean, it's, it's also voting season, right? And what better way to win your uh, base and increase your base? Um, what better way than to say, we're here to protect you against a foreign invasion? And I don't think it's general that it's been called a war, right? Because what better way, again, to um, cultivate a base other than um, increasing patriotism. So there's that, right? Um, and then there's also the deflection, um, which they knew that there was a potential for this virus since last fall before it grew to this, right? And instead of questioning you know, the structure, the US structure and its inability to manage such a crisis, it's now being you know, blamed upon some foreign people. Um, and then I think on the streets, what I'm noticing is people don't have the education around it and they're pissed. And so they want to find people to blame things on. They're enraged. Um, and folks who typically, most of us when we're enraged, we need an outlet. And what better way or what better people than those you deem as vulnerable, right? No, I think that's, no, that's absolutely right. Especially when you think about that this isn't empirically based. We spoke to friends in... British Columbia, we've spoken to friends in Europe, it has been confirmed that the first infections in those sites, even in Palestine, that the first infections were all transmitted through European tourists, right? Not, and, and, and they know that and they've traced that and yet none of those empirics have disrupted this narrative because they're not seen as outsiders in the same way that Asians would be seen. Right, right. Um, and I think that's that again is like a convenient um, scapegoat, but I also think it's a convenient, actually strategic, not convenient. I think it's a very strategic narrative to continue to perpetuate, right? Um, and even later when the administration is going to like hunker down and say, actually, you know, we're in this together, um, they're, they're going to use that narrative again as US patriotism. So um, I think this is all very strategic and um, well done, to be honest. So can you, t we, I've uh, followed some of the worst attacks that have happened. Like for example, there was an, an acid attack against an Asian woman in New York. Um, I've seen, you know, some really disturbing videos of young girls literally spitting on other school-aged um, Asian girls. Um, blaming them for this. How, what, from what you've been following, how can you, um, what picture can you give us of what this landscape has looked like and, and the actual harm that's being done to communities? 
So this is being the anti-Asian violence that this climate is seen on multiple fronts. On the streets, um, what we, you know, I, we have a colleague who has created a hate violence um, database. And from that database, we know that about 100 um, forms of hate violence are taking place a day. So those are the empirical numbers. And then what it looks like on the day-to-day -day is there was a, a, a woman in New York um, getting acid thrown on her. There are people on the streets getting kind of jumped um, on the subway train, like on the state, at the station. Um, there are, you know, people who are being confronted at grocery stores, right, um, being pushed and kicked. So there's physical forms. And then there's also, you know, for instance, my family, my auntie has cancer, so she wears a mask. And just the other day, she was at the supermarket and somebody literally chased her out the supermarket. They were like, do you have coronavirus? And of course she's, you know, small and she's like, no. And they literally chased her out. So there are these physical forms and then there's the terror, the terrorizing, right? Um, my family is like, Connie, you should bring a weapon when you leave the house because they're going to attack you, right? So we're living under um, fear. And that doesn't, you know, you can't necessarily um, collect data on that. Like how many of you are scared, right? That'd be like a bazillion. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then we also want to expand, you know, that this has been happening um, longer than before COVID took place. So there's been acts of violence against Asians for a long time. And I also want to uh, think about, you know, this, the institutional violence that's been happening to Asian um, immigrants and Asian communities in particular. I don't want us to just highlight like the physical forms of violence. I want us to think about, hey, you know, Asians have this, you know, especially Asian immigrants, undocumented immigrants don't have access to healthcare. That's anti-Asian violence too, right? Or we don't, you know, we we're more than 20% of um, the most poorest communities in New York City. That's also anti-Asian violence. So that's historic. A lot of our communities are too afraid to go to, you know, um, the, the hospital because we also, you know, we're, we're worried about our documentation. Um, we also don't get services. That's also anti-Asian violence. So there's the street, the kind of on the, on the grounds, there's the institutional stuff, and then there's definitely the lack of support that we, that um, shapes our everyday existence as well. Um, so I just want to kind of emphasize how, how scary it is um, to be alive in the U.S. Um, under COVID, on top of, you know, a pandemic. And, so. and Connie, uh, is, is, this, uh, is this something that uh, represents a spike, like a, like a noticeable and evident spike? And if so, I mean, how much of a spike is it, considering that I am certain that this is not something that was absent before? Well, I, so it, there is a huge spike. I know, again, that uh, Professor Russell Jung, Young, Young at San Francisco State is collecting data. The California and others, Chinese for affirmative action are also collecting data. And as I was saying earlier, we're noticing 100 forms, 100, um, you know, reports of violence a day. So that is exponential from what folks were experiencing um, at least anecdotally on the grounds. In fact, in terms of anecdotes, people are like, you know, they thought they were immune to violence this way. So now 
all these social media outlets are reporting, you know, and there are these, these acts of violence where they hadn't before. So it's actually also, you know, lifting people's eyes, like opening up their eyes. They're like, I didn't know that we were susceptible this way. So that's something for us to think about as well. I'm going to say something that's totally uh, problematic right now. Uh, Nora is bracing herself. Welcome to the club. No, I'm joking. Um, we, as Arabs, we, we, we <laughs> we're like, we're like now more of a, you know, we're more in the same circle. But I, I, I actually um, was asking because, uh, you know, there is this perception that uh, this sort of violence, this sort of uh, discrimination, exclusion, uh, doesn't touch on, you know, Asian Americans as much as it does on other groups. But I, I guess because of this connection, it actually shows that it's latent. It's always there. I also want to remind folks that, you know, those forms of violence is what brought us to the United States in particular. And I've been emphasizing this, right? Most of us came here as a result of colonial or imperialist wars. Those are like the greatest forms of violence, right? You're talking about war. And then as war refugees were brought over here. So people tend to forget that history when they come here and are not confronted on the daily basis as say black communities, indigenous communities, um, maybe you know, maybe some Latinx communities, browner communities, right? But we forget that that violence again is what brought us here. That was on the day to day. So that has to be remembered. Um, and that also has to be taught in history. And I think the other thing, you know, that's definitely worth emphasizing and back to your earlier point about a project of white supremacy is one that tries to consolidate whiteness in ways that, you know, makes it look like some communities are more eligible for it. And part of, for example, um, the, um, an Asian, you know, success myth or the Asian minority myth that they are, they're eligible for success will, I think, touch on what Bassam is saying, which distinguishes, might have distinguished um, Asians as being less susceptible to the violences that you're, you're, you're reminding us of, the structural violence, the latent violence, and a historical violence. I mean, the fact that, you know, people will see Asians as outsiders is the legacy of the exclusion of Asians from the United States through law, very explicitly through things like the Asian Exclusion Act, very explicitly um, in, in the demonization of Asian families, morality, women um, in, 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 a, in, in a U.S. context um, alone, you know, and in addition to and, and ways that also, um, I guess, more recently have fomented and justified war on these communities in their homes. Yeah, I really appreciate you historicizing the violence here in the United States, you know, naming the different exclusion acts, naming the different, you know, experiences with internment camps. Um, and, and then even what I was reminding us earlier is like our access to healthcare, our access to services. Um, I also want to make sure that we understand that when any of us subscribed to white nationalism or white supremacy, what we're seeing today is that that is not going to save us. Right? So I also want us to be critical of how it is that we inherited and subscribed to certain privileges, um, including white nationalism. And what we didn't 
appreciate was that that white nationalism was is always contingent and so a moment by which we get to question and be critical of how uh yes we were not we were differently susceptible to racial violence and now is a moment by which we say my identity and my safety does not hinge cannot hinge on white nationalism's acceptance of me absolutely that's globally um, you know, amen and ashe, right? Because part of the, that's part of the lesson that Arab Americans have learned. They fought for eligibility and whiteness and were able to earn that legally in 1915 through the Supreme Court. But that dream was, has been shattered multiple times, very obviously in the 19, aftermath of the 1967 war, again, obviously in the 19, you know, the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, and then so blatantly since the U.S.'s global war on terror, which has made, you know, permanent that you are this, this what you are not part of a white project and it will not save you. And this is something that the more that we remain invested in it is actually working against our own interests of the alliances that we can create of, of creating alternatives for that future. So, I mean, and that, that's what, you know, will also inform strategies because some people might see this moment and want to have a message of, but no, we're all the same and we're all American in this moment. Right. This idea of let's all be inclusive and that's how we're going to respond to this um, rise um, and acute anti-Asian violence versus other approaches that I'm sure you're a part of and paving the way for. So can you tell us about that? Um, I really love how you're summarizing everything. I, I think that is what draws our connections together and it makes me think two things. Um, it, historically, I've also talked to, you know, I've also mentioned this to people like Dr. Angela Davis. And I've, you know, there was a panel around, um, you know, supporting Palestine. And it was a, it was a Palestinian Black solidarity panel that I, I witnessed once. And I remember saying to her that, it, for me as a Vietnamese woman, it was so important to witness that panel because the traumas from imperialist wars are indefinite. And I know that as a survivor of intergenerational trauma from the Vietnam War. These, I think, these histories have to be um, reminded and they have to be connected. So in this moment, I'm working with different organizations. I've called on communities, um, Latinx communities, Black communities, Black immigrant communities, and asked them to issue, issue letters of solidarity, to make statements, um, to show that they are in support of anti-anti-Asian violence. Um, that's some of the work that we're doing a lot of coalition building. And in our coalition building, we're, create, we're reminding each other of our histories and how they're, they're connected, but also how we need to be more accountable to each other. That's one thing. In terms of AAPI Women Lead, we are hosting um, seminars online. We are hosting workshops online around the histories of Asians and Pacific Islanders in the United States. And then on top of that, we bring in um, other non-Asian communities to show solidarity on these seminars or workshops. And then we bring in our healers. 
um, acupuncturists, yogis, or whomever to help us process through the violence. So those are the different things that we're doing um, in coalition with other communities of color. The main thing around this moment is racial solidarity, if not like uh, international solidarity. It's super big. Otherwise, white nationalism will 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 take it, like will appropriate this moment and claim it as theirs. You know, it's a, it's it's we've seen it in history. Um, and I and I think that you know it's worth mentioning what this looks like on a global scale. So can we use white nationalism to also explain a kind of anti-Asian uh, xenophobia that we might, for example, say does exist in other parts of the world, right? Even if through playful memes sometimes. What would you say, what would you say helps to explain that? I mean, one, one aspect that, that's related to this sort of, uh, maybe this commonality uh, of being on the receiving end of racism uh, is this, the fact that it's not just that people here are concerned about uh, the quote-unquote the Chinese virus or, or the even government discourse at the highest level like would mention this but there's this idea that uh, uh, it, 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 the entire East Asian uh, uh, sort of uh, hemisphere or you know uh, territory is is assumed to be monolithic you know uh, just like when after 9-11 the attacks of 9-11 so many people from South, e South Asia were attacked and they were not even Muslim or Arabs or anything of the sort. So there's, so, so there's this commonality that, that I think uh, uh, is not even a concern in the dominant discourse because it's, it's given that if you're from East Asia, it, it doesn't even matter too much. Same as if you're Arab or Iranian or, 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 or Afghani, it's, it's basically a, a monolithic whole that, that is not sufficiently important to be distinguished, whereby people are not distinguished from one another. Yeah, I, I like that you guys are both saying those two things. One is that, you know, in terms of otherizing, it's always convenient for the otherizing project to make the other monolithic, right? You um, homogenize everything. You erase the nuances and the complexities to make those that are being otherized a convenient placeholder for everything you hate. So we see that in what you're saying um, around the, con the big convenient other. I think, and right now for Asians, East, for Asians, um, whatever that means, we're the, we're the big other right now. Um, and then I see that globally because we see it, especially in Europe. We see it, especially um, in, you know, white Australia, right? We see Settler, it white um, also- <laughs> Well, as a, as, a, as a settler sovereign, you know, the commitment to whiteness is, is not contingent, but yeah. is actually the project. Yeah. Out, of, out of fairness and uh, some form of objectivity, this sort of racism vis-a-vis quote-unquote Asians also exists in uh, areas where people are themselves the recipients of racism, like in the Middle East, when, uh, when people in the region People, you know, in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, uh, and, and North Africa, and the rest of the Arab world, I mean, uh, including the Gulf countries, uh, people speak of uh, Asians sometimes just as Chinese. They'll use the word Chinese to, to describe anybody who looks a certain way. So it's, 
just to be clear, it is also, uh, it's also global in that sense. So it goes even beyond, even if there is no power dynamic necessarily, it also all goes beyond uh, the sort of Northern Europe and North, uh, and North America. This sort of like uh, monolithicizing. We interrupted you, however. <laughs> yeah, we interrupted you. I, I actually like that you said that because again, you know, it speaks to the convenience of otherizing across, I guess, what you're saying across power. I think humans are unfortunately not willing to address the complexities of what it means to be human and in relation to each other. That's a more philosophical conversation, but I also think it's a political one because, you know, these, these um, I, I think that the charge is for those who are in power to create conditions by which people can be in relationship with each other without inflicting violence on the other, right? So if it's convenient for us to be other, I think that may or may not be the problem. It's that we are violent towards the other right? Versus being able to relate to the other. And so going back to this nation state, to the U.S., there's the, the response to the other is to inflict violence on the other. That's how it relates. And then it coheres against the other. It, it co like, so white nationalism, multicultural white nationalism coheres against the other and inflicts violence on the other. That's how it protects itself. It's, it's, that's its politics. Um, so I, I hear both of your, um, analyses about the world and about what we're, about the, the Asian right now being the quintessential other of the moment, you know, and I, I kind of want to bring back this issue that, you know, I think folks from the Middle East, um, I think our Black communities, African communities are still, and Latinx communities are still being, you know, sites of violence, are still operating as sites of violence. Like Asian folks did not take, take the cake. You know, there's still violence against our other communities. Um, and I don't want to displace that either. Well, white supremacist violence tends to be an equal opportunity um, uh, distributor. So <laughs> unfortunately, though, we're all going to bear the brunt. I think, you know, the last thing I'll say on this is just, you know, to highlight that there are certain bodies that could be read as being latent threats of being embodiments of either physical violence or embodiment of disease or embodiment of, you know, moral disruption and certain bodies that are immune from that. And this is another episode that's demonstrated to us the kind of immunity, the impunity that, you know, whiteness has of never, you know, of not being even though they're the, it's, you know, we had a guest yesterday who was sharing with us. You have to be of a particular socioeconomic status to have even been able to travel, to transport this particular virus, right? And that, that's not what we're, that's not, you know, either as a structure or as a person who we're holding to account. And so again, just affirming um, and raising up what you're reminding us um, in this moment and the imperative of racial solidarity and an analytic that reminds us of the structural violence and not just the spectacle of what we may witness. And, and you know, uh, we would love to go on. I, I keep saying this at, during every interview. We would love to go on, but 
we would like to wrap up by giving you the stage to address anything you'd like to address that you think hasn't been brought up. Oh, thank you. Um, I just want to, I think these conversations are so freaking important <laughs> right now because I am weary of what's going to happen post, in scare quotes, post COVID. Um, I think it's going to be even worse than what we're experiencing right now. And so we have the opportunities to set the stage for what it can look like um, because white nationalism, white multicultural nas multicultural white nationalism across the board is going to try to take the stage. And so we have to form our alliances knowing that it's going to be a struggle um, to defeat that. So I appreciate you guys having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Connie, for all of your um, comments and insights and and for your leadership, yes. for your leadership in this moment, what you, you, you know, you're also bringing us, you're creating the stage for us to actually come together and address to do that. So thank you. And there's plenty to do. Absolutely. And I just want to say that we're, uh, again, very excited to have had Connie with us today. I just also want to point out, Nura is always looking at me worried that I'm going to say something uh, interesting. But Nura uh, today uh, <laughs> actually put on her glasses. Um, so this is also a new way uh, of, of, of doing the show. So I just, wanted to, I just wanted to bring this up. Thank you all very Connie's much. Connie's so confused. Connie, Thank it, you it's okay. So Everything is going to be okay. And we're very happy to have talked to you. <laughs> yes, and uh, please stay safe. And hopefully we'll be in touch and, and talk about any of this under better circumstances. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I, I adore you both. So I, I'm... I'm full of gratitude. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.